Good morning, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, and it's Crosstown Conversations. And it's, um, I'm sure you've already been hearing a lot about Alan Toussaint. When, when somebody of that stature and importance to a city passes, um, it, it's just, I was so proud of the Times-Picayune with their front page, huge story and, and photograph, really paying tribute to a person who has done so much really for all of us, if you think about it. I mean, I often talk about um, Paul Prudhomme as having really launched the city as a culinary center, and um, Alan Toussaint's uh, music and compositions, um, and just his kind of doggedness, and also his professionalism. That's not something that I, I saw in a lot of the coverage, but it's very important because you know, a lot of our musicians in New Orleans do beautiful music and write great songs, and but don't really understand the business side. And this is a guy who um, set out from from very young years to make sure that he was rewarded financially for what he did, which not everybody does. And um, and that's why he was able to, build, you know, have a Rolls Royce with the piano license plate and and all the fancy suits and so forth. But you know, all that kind of stylistic side aside, it, it was really all about a certain kind of professionalism. And um, so I worked with him, and Don Marshall is sitting here in the studio with me. Don was the founding um, executive director of the Contemporary Arts Center, so he was there at the beginning, um, as was I, my husband and I, as I don't know that anybody doesn't know this because I make such a point of it all the time. I'm sorry. I take credit for something that has turned out to be so beautiful. And we were founders of it and worked on the first fundraising and organizational structure for it and so forth. And um, and then Jay Weigel's going to join us on the phone. And he was also, um, his role early on, before he became uh, executive director in later years, was as an intern. And he worked on the Do Drop In um, music series that we produced at the CAC. So he's going to talk a little bit. And then Ned Albright is a um, music producer based in L.A. who... You know, Alan has worked with probably hundreds of people in studio. I just happen to be a longtime friend of Ned Albright's, and he has talked so much about um, Alan's influence on him that I, I just felt uh, it would be interesting to hear him talk about what it was like to work in the studio with Alan. So we'll, we'll cover that, too, because that was also a very special process, um, very hands-on, but also very um, carefully modulated process uh, of, of how he uh, shaped, helped shape, and form the music that was produced in the studio. So, Don, um, I, I'm trying to remember, you know, exactly when we did the, um, what was it called, a Sunday afternoon with Alan or something like that? I think one of your, your first uh, activities at the CAC, and, and, and Alan was so great to the CAC, coming on board and, and really supporting. When we were nobody. Days. Nobody. Nobody knew who it was, what it was, and you know he was there all the time. And I think uh, the the Scales concert in 1977, which was um, pretty amazing, because Alan didn't perform a lot, you know. I mean, he was a songwriter first and foremost, and kind of shy in a lot of ways as far as performance. And I think you were responsible for drawing him out, and you know he did a solo concert there that was just brilliant. And then later, um, when you brought the uh, sort of the Do Drop In program 
uh, to the CAC. I think his was the closing night where he sort of curated, opening opening, opening the very first right. performance ever of the Dewdrop in uh, Festival series, which I keep trying to remember exactly which year we started. I, I think it was '77. And we did it for about five years, right. so three, four, five, 82. That's right. That's exactly right, five right. years. He was the very first performance. But let me step back before we get into the dewdrop because the, the dewdrops in um, festivals that we did for five years were um, a result of that first concert that we did. And that first concert was, as I recall, the very first benefit concert he ever did. Right. And here he's doing it for the Contemporary Arts Center, which was a baby. We were just born, and uh, we had our we had our fans um, and um, uh, folks who knew about us and were engaged. But a lot of people had no clue who we were at that point. Right? It was so exactly. new. And he agreed to do it. Yeah. And I didn't know him at the time. I mean, I just asked, and he just said yes. We were so great. Yes, we can. Can yes, yes, exactly, know? exactly. But it, I mean, it was amazing for so many people because. You know, I, I always feel fortunate. I, I grew up, I'm a, a native of New Orleans, and, you know, during the uh, the 60s and early 70s, you know, growing up in New Orleans, high school uh, dances at, uh, you know, different places, the, the Laborers Union Hall, uh, a lot of people went to Valencia, and, uh, you know, the, the music of New Orleans at the time was really his music. You know, we were we were enjoying... The, the beauty of Irma Thomas, you know, you had Ernie Cato, Benny Spellman. There was nothing better than a, an Irma Thomas, Benny Spellman concert. And, uh, I mean, the music that really made them was Alan Toussaint's music. And it was phenomenal how he could do the funkiest kind of New Orleans, upu-padu kind of working in a coal mine song, yet at the same time the emotional beauty of you know, rule of my heart, and uh, it's raining, even lipstick traces. I mean, the, the things that, that Alan observed in, in people and in the city and brought them to the forefront were pretty spectacular. So I um, feel very fortunate that, you know, I was growing up along with, you know, the, the great songs that uh, that Alan had created and everything. So it's, it's a, a real tragedy and a, a devastating loss to this whole city and the music community. <laughs> I'm sorry. We were just dealing with a little bit of technical stuff here. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, the concerts, it, it, for for a shy person, and, and, and it's not uncommon for somebody who is in the public eye, either with performances or news. I often have I've talked about um, the news anchors who were the most effective on the air, most charismatic, the strongest, in person would often be kind of flat and not very communicative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a weird um, thing, and, and that this is true also of writers who are so expressive writing, and yet in person they might not be that communicative. And um, and so, uh, you know, that shy persona in, in person um, did not translate on stage. He was not s- shy on stage, and he was right. a performer, even back in the days when he didn't do a lot of performing. But, you know, a lot of people call him shy, and I don't think that's the right word. I've never thought that was yeah. the right word. Yeah. He's a very uh, – someone, I think it might have been Quint was quoted in the article. Uh, somebody was quoted as saying he was kind of zen. Mm-hmm. He was more just – he didn't have to talk. 
you know, he he would he would talk when you asked him something. And um, I did an interview with him for uh, Index Magazine, which I guess you can online you can just um, Google Index Magazine, and then they have a list of all the interviews that they did. It's an arts magazine out of New York, and uh, and see the article. I, I also sent it out to the people that I normally send out my newsletters to. Um, from Crosstown Conversations. And uh, by the way, guys, if you want to get that newsletter, and um, I guess all you can have to do really is if you call, um, J- if you e- email jnathan.ci at gmail.com, we'll add you. <laughs> so, uh, and we don't send out a whole bunch, we send out once a week. So, uh, you know, the, our Creative Alliance sends out more, but. Only one a week of that. So, yeah, shyness, I don't think that's what was it. It was just a certain – some of us have to just jabber on. I'm one of those. And then there are those – and you're kind of like that, Don, also. You're not somebody who has to talk all the time. And so it's it's when somebody asks you a question that you – volunteer what's in your mind. But otherwise, it can sit there in your your brain. Well, I think he was a thinker. Exactly. And an observer. I think, you know, when, you know, you see what he observed through his his writing and everything, I think comparing him to a writer, I mean, he was the greatest songwriter we've ever had here. There you go. That's right. And so he was was more about that form of creation and certainly a a fantastic musician, whether it was on stage or studio. I mean, to hear him play was just, you know, amazing. But it really wasn't until after Katrina when he sort of, I guess, exiled to New York and then made some connections there and then came back really as a sort of a different, uh, you know, performer where all of a sudden you were hearing Alan Toussaint when, you know, growing up we didn't really know who was writing all these great songs for Irma and and Benny and and Cato and everything. He was behind the scenes producing and writing. But uh, we were very fortunate after Katrina that he he took on another phase in his Mm -hmm, career, and mm -hmm. we got to see the genius. Right. Um, I have a a quote of his. So this this interview that I did for um, Index, it was in about 1996. Um, The article is in interview style, so it's mostly Alan's words, and and that's what makes it, I think, uh, interesting. But here's a quote from him on songwriting. He says, I'm going to try to imitate his voice. So it's according to how it comes. (laughs) <laughs> Some are totally inspired and stay with you, help you, hug you. Others are a quick plot. Now that the plot has come, you have an assignment to do. Sometimes it's like listening to what it would say next rather than forcing it. Words are pretty general, been around for thousands of years. It's the distinction of what the words meant when the inspiration came that is important. Beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it's really incredible, and um, I mean, there's a lot of little quotes in here that I'll, I'll take in. Uh, so one of the things that um, we're all so grateful for is the way he spotlighted and cared for and um, communicated our city, right? So in all the songs, even if they were just, you know, basic pop, mother-in-law, um, uh, some of the more fun kind of songs, Coal Mine, Working in the Coal Mines, um, mm-hmm. Night People was always one of my Beautiful. favorites. Later, uh, later <clears throat> song, um, but it, it, you just you could feel New Orleans in all of that, no matter how pop it was. But so here's what he says about New Orleans in the, that article. He says, "I take in New Orleans all the time. It's reflected in everything I do. 
New Orleans is all about charm itself, old world charm. The pace is slower in every way, getting to the next block, getting to the next decade. It's not New Orleans or what. There is a price, but if you stay right in there, you don't know different. Even our hearts beat a little slower. The pace is so relaxed, the music reflects it too. It is something so strong that it can't be destroyed. New Orleans will always influence New Orleans, just as Chicago influences Chicago and New York, New York. Beautiful. I mean, you can hear it in Southern Nights. I think, you know, we, we, we often think of the, the Glenn Campbell version, but to hear him sing that, I mean, the beauty and the passion and the love of this, this area, I mean, it just really drips with, with New Orleans and everything. And it's, you know, it's kind of fun to kind of look at, you know, the impact he had nationally and internationally and the, the songs. I mean, I had totally forgotten about Whipped Cream and Herb Alpert. I, I, I don't remember Whipped Cream. Well, it was the dating game theme song. I know, but I didn't watch well, the dating game. Well, I'm not going to sing game. it on air I mean, with my <laughs> voice. But, I mean, you know, that was a huge, huge national hit. So, I mean, you you know, whether you had Yes, We Can Can by the Pointer Sisters. One of my favorites. Uh, my favorite has always been, you know, Boz Skaggs and Bonnie Raitt's version of What Do You Want the Girl to Do. Oh, yeah. And that's just mm-hmm. a fabulous song. And, mm-hmm. You know, people forget about Boz Skaggs, but, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain point in, in, in music history, he was on top of the, <laughs> the charts. So, uh, you know, and then, of course, Java with Al Hurt. Yeah, that so was – Java, uh, I remember that. Uh, what year was it? Do you know what year that was? Because I yeah. think I was in, like, high school right. or college when uh, I heard that. And you, you could not resist that tune. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, he, he knew how to, to make the phrasing, the catch, you know, and everything. But, uh, you know, not only just the, the New Orleans classic R&B, but, you know, just the impact he had, you know, with these other, you know, hits for other people. So, um, yeah, and, you know, it, it's interesting. Nobody's talking about this, but, you know, I never leave something unsaid. So there there were musicians that were not in love with, with Alan, and, and it was, I think, primarily some jealousy about, again, how he did his business. You know, he again, I don't remember exactly at what point in his life, but pretty early on he formed a publishing company. Correct. And that is like the key thing a songwriter has to do to protect the value of their creativity is to copyright it and to, and to own the publishing rights, and he did that. So um, there were those who, you know, I think were just a little jealous of that, but never actually understood the bedrock businessman in the artist. And this is something we talk about on this show a lot, is just how important it is for an artist to take care of business. Exactly. I think, you know, that's that's one of the things that we, we miss so much, you know, in the music industry. And, you know, you know, you hear so much about, particularly in the 50s and the 60s, the, the artists that were here, um, and how little money they made off of their work. And, you know, Alan was a professional. You know, he understood the business. And, you know, sometimes when you're a professional, you may, uh, some people may not like that, you know. I don't think it's that they don't like it. They don't really understand it, and they're envious of what they don't right. understand how to do themselves is, is part of it. Now, you know, there's so much work being done in this market now in, in, in so many different directions with the incubators and and the entrepreneurial pitch um, programs, and we're all trying to help more so than ever, I think, to get our creatives up to speed on how to deal with the marketplace and, and, and do what has to be done. 
And um, his life is a lesson that anybody can look at and see, uh, okay, that's how you do it. You know, you take care of your publishing rights right on uh, in the beginning. So um, I think is Ned Albright on? Okay, so hi, Ned. How are you? Good morning. Good morning to you. And I guess it's kind of really early where you are. What is it, about 8 o'clock? It's 8 o'clock. That's not really that early, Gene, for some of us. Uh, <laughs> okay. It depends on what time you go to sleep and whether you slept the night through or not, you know, that determines what's early or not. But um, uh, Ned, I mentioned earlier, is someone who worked with Alan in the studio and um, quite a few years ago. And, um, you know, there's so many, hundreds of people have worked in studio. You could have just, you know close your eyes and put your finger on anybody in the in the in the directory of of artists in the country and you know from the Paul McCartney's on down and um and see people who've worked with him but having heard you talk about it I I just thought it would be interesting to share what that was like because that's the side of of him that was you know really integral to his career that not many people have experienced. I've actually seen it in action. I was there when he was recording with the meters. Um, they all asked for you. I have video coverage of that buried in my archive somewhere. I've got to pull that out one of these days. But um, you worked with him, uh, uh, with a singer partner of yours, and I just wanted you to share with us, what was that like? Well, you know, Gene, I, I have to pre preface it by saying, you know, Alan Toussaint was a hero of mine growing up. I listened to Lee Dorsey and Ernie Cato and Chris Kenner and uh, people like that, oh, you know, on down the line. And when I met uh, Alan, you know, we, we prepared for 30 days writing songs. And we wrote 20 songs in 30 days, and we had an audition with Alan. And he just, when I met him, it was a total shock. Because I did not was not prepared to meet one of the great intellects that I'd ever met. He was, he, you know, I was, you know, all caught up in the music and didn't realize what an amazing person he was. And um, you know, we had uh, an audition. Usually, take you play three songs, and then they either like you or they don't. And Alan had us play 20 songs. And after each one, he said, do you have another one? And finally, <laughs> after 20 times of him saying, do you have another one? Um, I said, no, that's it. That's all we got. And my partner, Victoria Medlin, said, well, what about that song you wrote last week? And I said, well, you know, I don't think, I don't think he'll like that. It's a country western song. And Alan said, it was the first time he said anything other than, do you have another one? He said, um, what's the title? And I told him it was called Bad Apples Make the Best Wine. And he jumped up and had us record it, and then he took us upstairs to his office and made a deal with us. And so we, that started a year-and-a-half adventure with Alan Tucson, both recording and writing and doing all the things. Um, and in that time, you know, it was a life-changing experience for me, and it was like getting paid to go to school, because Alan Tucson in the studio was a lot different than what I was used to, which was New York union regulations, um, daytime sessions. You know, you'd be there 10 o'clock on the dot, 
and you worked for 50 minutes. With Alan, you worked all day. And, you you know, you'd get there around noon, and they'd, um, you know, have a beautiful, you know, the food was incredible. They, they, uh, you know, the food in New Orleans, obviously, is incredible to begin with. But Alan had a personal caterer that would come in. And so you'd eat this incredible food and drink a couple of Heinekens and, uh, you know, there was there was a, always usually a little smoke in the air, and um, and then we'd sit down and play musical, you know, for yeah. hours. And Ned, then right? Yeah, Ned, let, let, let me um, uh, put you on uh, a, a sort of virtual hold for just a minute. Just stay there. Sure. Uh, I've got Jay Weigel on the line, and he's he's in the middle of something, so we're just going <clears> to <throat> grab a couple seconds with him, and then we'll come back to you. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Um, hey. Uh, um, Jay, are you there? I am, Gene. How are you? Good. We're going to have a little buzz now because of um, uh, circumstances. But, uh, Jay, uh, what I wanted to bring you in to talk about was the time that you and I worked together when you were uh, a mere child, <laughs> an intern <laughs> at the CAC, um, and I was producing the um, Do Drop In series, which, again, this came out of the conversations that I had with Alan when we were producing that first fundraiser, and he basically told us, um, uh, uh, told me about the the old do drop in on LaSalle Street and how that was a place that, you know, musicians used to jam like 24-7 because it was the only place in town during segregation days where um, black uh, artists could, could uh, stay. And so... They often um, uh, would play in this club, and there would be jam sessions galore, and it it just sparked the idea of doing jam sessions, which is what we elected to do. The first year we did uh, Midnight Till Dawn, (laughs) nine days straight, and I was working at television during the day. Uh, You know, that's what's called youth. But um, tell me, tell me what your impressions were in the in those early days when we were working on that of, of what it was like working with him. I, I can't remember which year you worked with us. Uh, was it the very first or the second? No, well, I, I can't. Well, I can't. No, I don't think it was the very first. Um, though I went to some of the very first because um, I was in college at the time at Tulane, so it was. Uh, I was younger than you, so I could stay out later than Eugene and uh, have no responsibilities about it at all. And I can just tell you that um, years later when I started formally working at the CAC, and I would mention to people the CAC that I knew who, to my knowledge, had rarely gone there, if ever, they all had gone to do drop-in. Everybody remembered those experiences, um, hearing music there late at night during those times. And that just blew me away um, that it had struck so many people because you, you just you forget, you know, you just you're so into it. And so working on it, you know, with with Alan and you and you know, the crowd of musicians, you know, I remember, you know, Johnny Vadaka, all those guys, you know, from Astral Project. The house band, all the, you know, David Torkanowski. Yeah, Torkanowski and Alvin Jim Batiste Singleton, was in guess, there, Singleton. Um, the guitar player from the Meters, uh, Lon Price, you know, was yeah. another one of the guys. Yeah. He just never, I, you know, these, to me, these were all people that I was just getting to know and looking up to. But Alan was just, as he was for all of us, just such an icon of, of calm creativity somehow. You know, he just had this demeanor about him. Literally, the first time I met him, you know, my mentor is Roger Dickerson, and Roger and Alan were good friends, and Roger taught me composition, 
And so Roger would every year have a party at his house for all the students. And I'll never forget the year Alan came. And this quiet, tall man, this is probably 1980, sitting in a chair, gets up, goes, because everyone had to perform at Roger's parties. You had to read a poem. Whatever you did, you had to do. And Alan sat down and improvised on jingles from television for like 10 minutes from McDonald's. Just He just realized how incredible his hands were and the vocabulary of, of, of popular music that was in his hands. And, you know, like Ellis, who has every jazz riff in his hand, Alan had the entire lexicon of American popular music in his hands. You know, and he did in his own way. And right. your concerts were like that. He just would get up and he did things no one else he did the same things everyone did, but differently somehow, you know. It was so amazing. So, right. And, but what's, what's also interesting, at the same time that he had that, that whole um, catalog of music in, in his mind and his hands, but he also was very improvisational when he was not focused on a particular song. And um, I, I'm so familiar yeah. with, um, if you think about the opening of Southern Nights and that sort of tinkly, ethereal sound, when he would just sit and improvise at the piano, um, you would hear, I, I, I sometimes say it's, it's kind of a, a zen Keith Jarrett. It was totally improvisational, but much more sort of um, almost delicate. I don't, I don't know the right uh, word. And um, but, but again, just... Uh, a whole different um, level of, of musical thinking and expression from the, the pop songs that he did yeah. that inspired us all but also were fun and, and, and just for the, for the mass market. Yeah, I think Alan, uh, you're right. I mean, when he, he had a way, in my mind, when he played in the, in the times he played the way you're talking that I, that I had the pleasure of hearing him, in that free-form kind of way where he just was Alan for a minute, not trying to, I assume, write the next hit or please a crowd, but just play and express himself. It was very, I think your word is well, well-placed, very ethereal. I mean, it was, it breathed and it moved and it, it was, it was like life would be on a planet that was gaseous. You know, you just kind of floated and moved in and out of these environments as opposed to walking on solid earth. When he wrote a pop tune, you know, it was kind of like, you're going to dance to this dude, and you move to it, and you need the ground to do that. But when he played the way you're discussing, to me, it was like floating, and you just kind of float. I did, at least, yeah. kind of float with him through his his ideas. And the way, in, but even inside of those ideas, you would hear the nuggets of of American music, you know, and, and New Orleans music very specifically being the sort of, in, in many ways, the beginning of pop music. But boy, when he sat down, and boy, when you worked with him on a piece of music, he knew exactly what he wanted, you know? It, it really, I hear that endlessly from musicians who worked with him, that um, he knew exactly how he wanted the trumpet to be played, exactly how it could be phrased, and patiently directed you to that point, you know, that, that he was after. Right. And that's, that's a great skill. You know, it's, it's, it's a great skill to have. Just so patiently. I've heard Philip Manuel say when he would, because Alan started using him as a backup singer when Philip was a kid, and it was at night, and at 2 in the morning, you'd take a break, and he says the, the ladies would come in with big pots of food and feed everybody, you know, and everybody was just it was very familial, but at the same time very, very professional and very on, on point, on target, and it's really, I never got to work with him in a studio. 
So, Jay, um, but, I, I know that you have to um, run, and I, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with us. And i got to get you in here and talk uh, on the show uh, one of these days about what you're doing, because I know that you are in the composing and performing uh, universe as well with film and, and uh, opera and all kinds of venues. So um, come back and talk with us again real soon. I've I got will. A, uh, Thank you, Jean. Thanks rolling. for doing the show. Thank you. Okay. And, and Ned, Bye-bye. you're still on, right? I am still here. Okay, Ned, I wanted to go back to the studio issue for just a minute. I'm going to run out of time quickly, but I'm going to just um, take a few more minutes on this. Um, So uh, one of the things that um, – hold on a second. We're just – did did we lose Ned for a minute? Okay, so Don, (laughs) (laughs) um, I want to read another one of the um, quotes from that article that relates to – um, the technology of music that I find uh, kind of interesting too and, and the heading on this section is called Progress. Because of the technology this is Alan talking, because of the technology <laughs> music serves the country like the town crier used to. It gives the news the temperature of things. I love progress but technology is trash in trash out. If you're hip you will do hip things with technology if you're jive you'll do jive things if you're honest you'll do honest things with it The evolution of music is just as much at work today as ever. I think some things are very fresh and some are relevant to all ages. After all, we all have two legs, so of course, the new music and the old music are connected. This is a very exciting time. Things are moving at a faster pace, and the whole world can receive the same message at the same time. If there is a price, I'm most concerned with the loss of romance. Man and woman, who is hitting on you just to have someone say hello? Of course, some might prefer the machine to people. So, um, you know, <laughs> Ned, um, I, I know that you, again, experienced both the technology and the romance of, of working with him um, in, in the studio. Tell me, again, sort of take me back, t- take me into that session. So we left off with you saying that he wanted to hear that country music song. You recorded it. Um, and, and what was it like literally working on a, in a session with him? Well, working in a session with him was so interesting for me because I was really, you know, I I was in my early 20s. I was very, um, I was like a, a dry sponge. And so what Alan did, which I hadn't experienced before, <clears throat> Jay was just saying, he had, a, he had a specific plan for everybody. But he made it fun and he made it groove. And so you would come in, you know, for instance, when we were doing a song, would work with each guy to uh, make sure that they kind of knew what he was looking for. And then he'd make it fun and funny. Now, I have to say, we, you know, on our sessions, we had the meters and we had James Booker. And, Uh you know, so we would have to talk about James. We'd have three core, three keyboards going. Alan, and uh, and uh, I, I, what am I saying? We would have sometimes four keyboards going. We would have Alan. Uh, I think we're having a, a problem again with the uh, uh, Ned. I can't hear you. Can't get that session down. Hello. Okay. Um, I'm gonna. I want to read um, what maybe one of the last. I, I could read this whole thing. It's so. It's just his words that we're dealing with here. But 
This one is particularly poignant in terms of um, what's just happened, which none of us were ready for or expected. Um, So this is a quote on aging. He says, it's wonderful. There's no other way to get what aging gives you. Wisdom, seasoning, enough witnessing to be able to acquiesce in your mind. That is one of the most delightful changes, being able to change your mind about something you thought was another way. You get two chances at that. The first time you come up on something in your planetary walk with the effervescent eyes of children. Then people get into an arrogance and complacency and need to be hip. They lose the romance and the freedom to change their minds. Then, if fate is kind, there is a jolt, a miracle, and they find it again, this time with knowledge. But every age is very special. The point is to make every age of life exciting. So, unfortunately, no more of that going forward. Um, Ned, I've got to um, get on to my other guest because um, we have an election coming up, and I'm uh, very concerned oh, about certainly. making sure well, that people um, participate. And uh, so, um, you know what, y'all, I'm going to put that interview on the Creative Alliance of New Orleans site. So, C A N O hyphen L A dot org, because I haven't dealt with half of it, and I want you to hear it. And, yeah, um, and- and Ned, maybe you can uh, send us in an email, and I'll, I'll post that. And Don, right. um, who, who was there for the beginning, um, thank you uh, so much for um, sheltering us. You, 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 agree, you, you supported us and said, okay. You said, okay. You said yes, too, Everything. as Alan did. You said yes. <laughs> And, and made it possible for us we need, to do We it. need a, a, a new book on the writings of Alan Toussaint. I mean, just the beauty of his words and the depth of his thoughts and his romance and his passion. I mean, it's phenomenal when you, you hear the interviews and you, you read what he, he had to say. It's unique. Absolutely. Ned, closing words? Yes, just closing words. What uh, I mean, the love that I had for Alan Toussaint and the love that Alan Toussaint radiated back to me was just a treasure that I made such an important, profound effect on my life. I just can't say enough about the guy. Just an amazing, amazing uh, human being and an amazing talent. And I feel blessed and lucky to have, you know, stood in his shadow. Send send me an email, Ned. I'm going to include it on the on the uh, program. I, I'm going to read one more quote since you brought up love, and that'll be uh, the, the last word. So on love, overwhelming desire of someone's presence in your heart, not ears or eyes. Overwhelming desire for someone's presence, but I don't mean that they have to be standing there. Things intangible are invisible. Invisibles, that's where love hangs out. If one is sensitive enough to regard and respect love, even the part that one doesn't understand, and to feel that someone holds that for you, that is almighty. That was Alan yeah. saying. Thank you very much, Ned. Wow. Thank you, Gene. That's that's profound. Thank you. Thank All you. right, guys. So so the way I'm going to transition this is by saying that he did his share for New Orleans. Now it is your turn to do your share for New Orleans, and that is all wrapped up in the importance of you voting in this upcoming election. I think we have um, one day left for early voting? Three Three days left. So Julie Schwamm-Harris is with me, who is 
chair, and I don't have my notes real out there, but it's, it's a, a lobbying organization for women. The exact name is? Legislative Agenda for Women. It's an advocacy organization, volunteers with about 18 organizations. Thank you. And with you is, um, uh, oh, dear, I just saw a mistake in my copy here. Um, but tell me your name and title, please. Hi, my name is Latanja Sylvester. I am president of Service Employees International Union here in Louisiana. One of the uh, unions uh, in our universe that is still powerful, works hard uh, on behalf of your members and for all working people. It's a very important uh, union, and I am um, pleased to be in your presence and appreciate you coming in. Thank you for So, um, Julie, you were saying that we, we do have three early voting days left. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I don't think, understand why um, early voting is so important. And uh, the candidates all press people to do the early voting. Tell me why that's so important. And Telly Medina is on the phone, and we'll join Telly Medina in, in a second also. Well, early voting is important for a lot of reasons, and it's not just that it's voting early. It's really just more voting, meaning more opportunities to vote. People live very busy lives, and a lot of people that are affected by by electing various people, they, they have trouble sometimes going for the very restricted one day of voting. So going early means you have more opportunities to vote. You also can avoid problems that might come up if uh, you don't anticipate them, maybe having to go out of town at the last minute, a family emergency, uh, inclement weather, because if you vote, if you walk to your polling place or you're elderly and have some challenges getting to your polling place, early voting means you can get it done and not worry about what might come up in the interim. Another thing is with early voting, if a family members are taking you to vote, you can all vote in the same place if you live in the same parish. You don't have to go to your precinct. On election day, you have to go vote at a very specific precinct that may or may not be walking distance, but you can go together as a family. So it's a good thing. And we have early voting today, tomorrow, and Saturday till 6 o'clock. And there are four locations in Orleans. There are four locations in Jefferson. Um, we can read them in a little while. I want to send one other thing. It's, it's an important message. When you vote early, it shows that and when a lot of people vote early, and they're voting early more now than in the previous election, it shows that you're really engaged. And it, it really sends the message to other people, oh, there's a lot of interest in this election. I'm kind of interested in it, too. I'm going to go, too. So it, it, it's a motivator. Right. Yeah, and, and um, I think the easiest location I just want to call out is City Hall. Everybody knows where City Hall is, and, and you can go to City Hall and vote. It's a little tricky to park there, but you just go around the block a couple times and you'll get a spot. And um, so, and what are the hours at City Hall? Uh, I believe there are 9 to 6. I'm going to check on that. Yeah, 9 to 6. We got it up on the wall here. I can't mm -hmm. read it from here, but... Um, We'll get it for you in a second. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, uh, let's see. Let, let me join in Telly. 8.30 to 6. Okay. Uh, uh, Telly, are you there? I am. Good. Uh, because one of the messages that I wanted to get across to folks about how important it is to vote in this election, and I'm going to let everybody else talk about the issues that are important, but the turnout, the turnout in the first was low. We are now faced with very close elections. And we have an opportunity 
that we can't miss by just not getting out to vote. So what happened in the first? How, how much lower than normal was the turnout, or, or how would you express uh, how low it was, and, and who didn't vote? I want to know, in the city of New Orleans, what parts of the city did not vote? Well, that, that's a difficult one to conclude when looking at the entire 64 parishes. We always predicate race. And first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm happy to be on with uh, two old friends and Julie, uh, not calling Julie old, but older friends that I've known for a long time, Latanja. <laughs> but uh, uh, Latanja's the old one, though. Uh, <laughs> wise. Oh, with, that's not wise. With that, She's beautiful with, and young. With that said, uh, it, people are motivated to vote by a variety of different reasons. Some of those reasons is a person who manages campaigns that you want to use is hate. That may sound absolutely terrible, but sometimes people hate the state of affairs. They could even hate the candidate uh, or the direction that Louisiana is going in. So some of the blocks of votes that you look at, if you look at Orleans Parish, and we also have the expectation that the numbers may be 10% lower in some areas than what they were in the primary because it's sometimes hard within election cycles to get people to vote two times back-to-back, month after month. Uh, but... Uh, if you ask across the city where were numbers lower, sometimes statistically you would say those numbers are lower where people are impoverished. And we talk about that on Eileen Carter's show on Mondays, that uh, people who are uh, who feel like that they're in disproportionate circumstances have a tendency to say politicians aren't going to do anything for us. Our life and our situations are not going to change, so why should I vote? When in fact that's actually the inverse of that argument. Uh, so uh, when you looked at parishes, uh, African-American male votes were down uh, in the primary when African-American females across the board are higher. So if you had to calculate this particular race, uh, it would say that John Bell needs to do you know, 25 percent of Republican votes to win, and he, he needs 30 percent of the African-American votes to win, uh, and he needs to hold himself on liberal uh, and white female Democrats. Those numbers are going to be very hard to get to. Uh, in the runoff, but it is possible. So, so what what is it we we have to? Uh, what will motivate people to come out in a second? I hear what you're saying about not wanting to come out a second time, but this is the one that counts. This is the this is the final, the final bell. And um, why is it important for people to get out in this race? So that is some of the work that we're doing here with the Power Coalition. So SEIU is also a member of the Power Coalition. It's a statewide coalition of 15 community organizations that are advocating for um, people to participate, uh, people of color, color in particular, to participate in the uh, political process. Uh, it's nonpartisan. However, what we're doing in several different areas, in Homa, New Orleans East, Lower Ninth Ward, Lafayette, Baton Rouge, uh, Algiers, um, just to name a few, uh, we're in, we're engaging people, and not just you know regular voters. We're engaging um, low propensity voters, infrequent voters, because we have to drive home the message of what Telly just said is that like. The election process and the people that are representing you has to speak to your issues. So unless you are actively participating in the political process, then your issues will never be met, and they will continually be ignored. 
So we're um, our goal is to increase voter turnout of infrequent voters by 15,000. So we're doing door knocks every day. We're doing live phone calls through the predictive dollar system. We're sending out mailers. We're we're doing everything that we can to get those people. It's, it's a total of six touches touches that we're um, um, that we're touching upon these folks to get them to the polls, and that's continuously engaging them around things that are important to them in their community. So I think that um, one thing that concerns me, and I'm wondering how much of an impact this has had, and, and any one of you uh, uh, chime in on this, but um, we lost a lot of voters after Katrina, people who could not come back for various reasons or chose not to when, when they got settled in, in another place and, and their kids were in school and they had a job. And so we lost a lot of voters. And um, I'm very concerned about all these young creatives who've come to town and are probably most of them not registered to vote even. So I, I wish I had really got on this uh, earlier about getting them registered because that would have helped our numbers. But what we really have to ask people to do is to make up for the folks that we have lost by being sure to vote. So even though they're gone and it's the numbers are still huge, the people who are here, it's it's all the more important for the people who are here to vote. Exactly. And and we are not that's the reason our targeting is it isn't targeting people that we know that they're going to the polls. Because we lost out on a lot of a big a huge voting block post Katrina. Those people that are registered or haven't been registered, so we are also registering people to vote, but we're at, we're also a- activating people that hasn't voted in some time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what's really interesting and inspiring to me in this election, sometimes you have choices that it really is hard to feel that there's going to be a difference if you vote one way or the other, and there are some races like that. But in this race, at the top for governor, there are some stark differences that the candidates have and that those who care about working people, those who care about just everyone getting access to health care, those who care about just respect from the elected officials that you have, there's a stark choice that you have to make. And so when I, I, you know, I joke about it, but I say, you know, vote as if your life depended on it because the outcome of this election really will mean life or death to certain people. Access to health care quickly, access to a, a living wage, to a wage that allows you to take care of your family in a healthy and productive way. Those are things that are life or death situations. So this is not just, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You've got some choices, some stark choices in who you vote for this yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think in the first, um, you know, there was, a, there was an assumption, oh, it's just going to be bitter period. And, and a lot of people, I think, didn't bother to go to the polls because they just felt it was fruitless. It was it was uh, not going to happen. <clears throat> it's gotten much closer, but it's actually at this point um, dangerously possible that uh, it could revert back to, um, you know, a, a, a bitter win. And, and the, what concerns me, you were talking about the health issues. Four, the number I hear most often is that there are 400,000 people in the state of Louisiana who cannot get health insurance because our, our sitting governor, or I should say running, because all, that's all he's doing is running for president, um, uh, refused to accept the funding, federal funding, that would have allowed people to get health insurance, which is, you know, if, if, if you are dealing with the fiscal side of it, 
Forget the humane side for a minute. The fiscal side of it is idiocy because having people flooding emergency rooms when their their health issues have advanced is so much more expensive than having the insurance to get them into their doctor's offices and clinics earlier. So uh, that, that, that kind of insanity is what's uh, at risk here. What the I've been... That- I'm sorry. The thing that I would add is that, keep in mind, the state of Louisiana is ranked third in the country of people who are registered. So we have a population of a little under 3 million. You probably have about 2 million plus people who are registered across the state. And, you know, probably under 1 million solid, I guess, if you went through cycles of individuals who vote uh, statewide. So the issue isn't registering, and I think we kind of touched on that. The issue is activating the people who are in, you know, cumulative cycles who have not voted. Katrina, 44 people went to 44 different states around the country. You may have lost about 250,000, 275,000 people on the roads. And a good portion of those individuals were minorities, black folk, women, uh, who uh, were people who, you know, if you were if no Katrina, Mary Landrew more than likely gets reelected. You look at it from a variety of different standpoints. But when you look at the state of affairs where voting, uh, and not just voting but activation in Missouri, a football team and students stood up, and then you saw what happened with the outcome. Mm -hmm. I think that people have to get to the point where it's not just about voting, but it's about what is happening for laws that are on the books. And specifically, if you're looking at it from a justice perspective, what happens if you don't have a representation body that can help you with your needs and concerns. Uh, and so if you make the decision not to vote, then there can be a difference in zip codes that we study across the country where one person, uh, when they have issues with diabetes, is getting treated with a pill, and in the next zip code, the individual is having a leg amputated. Mm-hmm. That isn't me just making that up. That mm-hmm. is physically on the book for right. how individuals are treated differently. Right, so. exactly. Um, so health is one of the issues that, and one of the reasons why people need to come out to vote. Living wage, Julie, you said, is another. What are some of the other issues that are um, really important for people to think about as, as why they need to pick up and walk, uh, drive, and get to the polls? Criminal justice reform. I think that that is a huge issue in a state uh, that is the most, and New Orleans being the most incarcerated city in the world, and Louisiana being at the top of having the most people incarcerated. I think that uh, individuals going to prison, doing uh, 10 and 20 years sentences for uh, one bag of marijuana is, is ludicrous. I think that there is a lot of different people and a lot of different issues out there relative to criminal justice reform that needs to be uh, changed on the books. The laws need to be uh, repealed Mm -hmm. so that we can put these people back to work and back into their communities. Not only that, I mean, if you take a person, uh, an African-American male from his family and put him in Mm -hmm. prison and then label him as a convicted felon, that not only deteriorates deteriorates his life, it also deteriorates his family. Mm-hmm. So there's a wife, there are kids there, they're also impacted by these decisions. So I think that it is important that we begin to, in Louisiana, to change some of the laws that relative to criminal justice. 
Yeah, so we're, we're talking about extremely fundamental social mm-hmm. and economic mm-hmm. issues are at stake. And, you know, people like to complain a lot about mm-hmm. it, but um, the one single thing that everybody can do to affect these issues is vote. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I was very surprised to hear, Telly, uh, you say that we're, we have such a high number of registered voters in proportion to other states in the country. And yet, in an, an election that is as important as this one, at a time that, you know, we're, we're, the state is kind of, you know, we're always sort of on the brink. You know, I say we're on the brink of, of, of you know, more economic activity, of, of more people being able to be involved in the economy because it's changing. Things are changing uh, dramatically in many ways. A lot of young folks who are entrepreneurial in spirit have come here. Presumably, they're going to create businesses which will hire our people. Our education is changing. Uh, the, the jury's out on whether the changes the way we're changing is going to work or not, but at least we are doing something and it, it's changing. So um, dealing with these issues that, that can be addressed legislatively mm-hmm. and, in, and in the governor's office is part of the mix. Right. And if we don't deal with that, then we're not going to be taking, up, taking um, benefit from these changes and making sure that everybody... Uh, shares in them because in, in, in final analysis you know uh, I don't know this is such a fundamental thing in my brain every time somebody wants to talk about crime and, and now you can't watch tele- uh, local news I can't watch it period anymore because all they do is, is, is incidents of crime because that is coming up as the hot issue that everybody wants to talk about the truth of the matter is that crime is a symptom the disease is bad education it's, and it's lack an, of jobs. Bad education and lack of payment for people who are working. I mean, one of the big things is people want to say that education is what's going to pull people out of poverty. Well, education is definitely important, and we need to educate people. But we also need to pay people who are currently working so that they can take care of their families so that child is ready to accept education. Education, when you are living in the stress of poverty, it's hard for children to learn. It changes chemicals in the body. That's stress. It changes chemicals in the mind. They're they're showing studies that, that the stress of living in poverty make it hard for you to learn. So if we want kids to be able to learn, yeah, we got to have schools. We have to improve the schools. We have to make sure that the schools have the facilities that they need, that they have the books that they need, that they have, you know, teachers who are professional teachers who have been trained and know how to work with kids. But you also need children that are living in households that are wholesome. And, and to do that, a, a, a parent, a mother, or a mother and a father, they can't be working three jobs just to cobble together poverty wages. And that's what we're requiring them to do by not having a, a living wage, by not having a wage that respects work and workers, um, and by not having paid sick leave as a requirement, by not having paid maternity and family leave as a requirement. When you respect a family, you know, we say, some of our politicians say they respect families, but that they don't implement laws that do. And we've got some ser- a choice in this governor's race for who is going to implement these, these types of uh, programs. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, I guess That's your job. Yeah, yeah, it was my job. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so important. And, and I, the workers that we represent work in low-wage industries. And I don't, I don't say that they're low-wage the workers. The service industry represents, uh, your union represents people who literally work. They're the people who are 
the housekeepers and hotels, the people working well, in actually, the Well, actually, we represent, and, we are, that's, that's, that's another union, but here in Louisiana, we represent um, City Parish at the at Baton Rouge uh, municipality in the city of New Orleans. But we also represent uh, cafeteria workers, custodians, bus drivers that are in our school system. And most of their jobs has, have gotten worse because that, that industry has been privatized in our public school system. So um, so it's, uh, it's exactly what Julie is saying is that, you know, we I, I advocate for education, yes. But if a parent has to work two and three jobs, and they're not there with their kids to do their homework, mm -hmm. then that shows a tremendous impact on the, that kid's ability to learn. Mm -hmm. We have members, I have members that work three jobs, and each job paying them less than $10 an hour. That, mm -hmm. that isn't fair in a city where tourism is our top dollar. Mm -hmm. That the tourism industry brings in millions and billions of dollars every year, and the people who are working in those jobs aren't getting paid the adequate wages to make certain that their lives are, are, mm -hmm. and their needs are met. Yeah, the, 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 there's a lot of levels to the issue of, of the tourism industry and, um, and and how it benefits or doesn't the rest of our economy. I, I've always been very concerned about um, something that's a, a little bit dry in comparison to what you're saying, but the, the marketing dollars that the tourism industry gets is spent on very generic advertising around the country. Um, they, they always talk about a culture, but um, none of that marketing dollar actually reaches – the artists, whether they're performing, visual, media, literary, culinary, mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't reach them. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that I really am hoping, if we can get some responsive folks into office at the state, we can address so that literally the people who are the creators in our city that mm -hmm. uh, create the culture that we all talk about mm -hmm. but don't invest in. Um, that we can change that. That's that's the one thing that I, I would actually like to talk to you ladies about that going forward because we are trying to bring a coalition together around that issue. But yeah, this is um, this is a critical time, folks. Telly, um, what what can you add to this in terms of uh, how critical it is uh, for us to figure out how to get people out? What 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 message do you want to deliver to the to the people who are listening that will actually get them up out of their houses and into the voting booths? Uh, Latanja and Julie vote live, and before we go on the House and Senate floor, a uh, roll call is called, and then a minister comes up and he'll pray, and then individuals salute to the American flag. Immediately after that, the individuals on the Senate side or the House side may walk out on a vote for equal pay for women. So keep in mind what I said in this very patriotic company. Roll call is called. And then we pray to God. Then we salute the American flag. And then the individuals who pray to God and then salute to the American flag may take a walk on a ability for women to make equal pay. And the contractors associations are not concerned whether it's about paying women in equal ways. They just don't want to lose out on money. It, it genuinely isn't. It is about losing out on money, and that is curved or curled into the ability to pay women equal wages. If you're thinking about how those things, just on women alone, specifically on African-American women who need those dollars in order to raise families in single-family households, it is significant for women to show themselves in this election in order to benefit for the individuals who have uh, that best Telly, Telly, thank you, thank you so much for that. And and Julie Schwam Harris, 
and um, I keep losing. Uh, I'm going to get to know you, Latanja. Uh, Sylvester and Telly Medina, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out. And now you guys out there, please take the time out. Go vote. This is Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. Thank you.